Having a small law firm doesn't necessarily mean small expenses, as some attorneys who go out on their own learn sooner rather than later. That said, what are some ways to stretch the revenue you bring in? I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, we're discussing small firm budgeting tips with Natalie Kelly. She's director of the State Bar of Georgia's Law Practice Management Program, and also serves as a state bar liaison with the National Association of Legal Administrators Atlanta chapter. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be with you today um, and excited about the topic we're covering. <laughs> All right. Um, the first question I'm going to ask you, which I think is probably most people's first question, if they have a smaller firm, how do you figure out what you have to bill each month to meet your rent obligation? And what are some ways to come up with a rent obligation that may not may cause you less stress? Well, I think that that's a very, very important um, question. And I think even it, it's deserving of some background because uh, as you might have realized just looking around that there are a lot of, lot of firms who place themselves strategically when it comes to clients. And so, therefore, being in, say, high-rent areas, uh, in areas that where their clients would find them and where they can find a client that's most suitable for their practices, um, the rent is one of the major expenses when it comes to overhead for the firm. And in a solo or small firm practice, that's eating a good uh, sometimes 10, 15% of what's what's coming in. And so trying to figure out exactly how much you have to bill each time really is going to be dependent upon knowing what that number is for where you're located. Um, and so one of the very, very first tools that is really key to a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is understanding or having a budget for what those numbers really actually are. Um, and so while it can vary wildly from being in a very, very high-end a rental space to a shared office space where some of the expenses are not um, necessarily in place to even having, say, a virtual practice where it's it's maybe even almost a non-factor other than maybe renting a conference room for a couple of a uh, hundred bucks or so over a couple of months. And so knowing what that figure is is going to be quite important, as well as having some form of budgeting tool. So once you've figured out exactly what that rental amount is or that obligation is, how to know what you need to bill every time uh, will probably depend on what that number is and then actually billing to that number um, and having that number reach maybe the 15 to, I would say, maybe 15% or under of what that overall revenue would be in terms of the overhead amounts. And so... There's not necessarily a magic formula to this. It's really more so knowing how to do the budgeting and knowing what that number is. I think those are the important keys um, in a solo or small firm practice. Okay, so you should maybe figure that your rent should be about 15% of your revenues each month. Well, I, I'm thinking that, that, and again, because it's so varied, at least having um, some number in terms of that. And, and, and a lot of factors is it, it can, when you're talking solo and small from practice and you're talking practice areas, it's a very difficult proposition sometimes to think about that. When you're in a metro area versus uh, uh, you're out in the, in the suburbs or even in a home office, understanding what those amounts are going to be. It's such a varied 
amount or figure that I don't know that you would be able to, to put down or say a particular percentage point. But looking at what the overall, uh, if you look at the, the, the overall revenue from a firm or what that production amount might be, um, usually the, the, you know, 52% revenue going to partner or to the lawyer income component with the remaining portions covering overhead expenses, a good portion of that overhead expense is going to be gobbled up. And looking at that 15% range is probably um, at least a starting point, if nothing else. And do you think in terms of location, do you think, do clients really care where an office is? Or is that something that perhaps lawyers are more concerned with than the, the clients or potential clients? Well, my 20 years here at the bar, I think it's it's a little of both. I think the concern comes on both ends. Um, lawyers are very concerned that they have a very professional presence. And depending upon the type of practice, um, then the client has also an expectation of their lawyer uh, being in facilities that uh, kind of match what they're expecting in terms of level of service. Um, and so I think it's important to have a very professional space. Um, and whether that be even in a home office where you may not even receive clients, but the whole perception that you're at work in a professional space um, and what that would bring to the equation in terms of getting work done and being productive to actually having a physical office space um, where you may you know, be in a small firm with uh, an office sharing arrangement in an office suite um, and then having a professional space, regardless of whether it's an industrial park or, you know, the high rise right across the street from where I'm located in downtown uh, is, is going to be important. Um, and I think the, the, the conversation of does it matter is that I think it does, in fact, matter. And I think it matters to both lawyers and to the public, but just at different degrees, depending on the type of client and the type of practice. And you mentioned office sharing. Do you have advice on picking good situations? It seems like we hear a lot more lawyers are doing office sharing, and it seems to make a lot of sense, especially for costs. But I can also imagine situations where office sharing goes awry. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are situations where not knowing, again, back to that budgeting, I think of uh, the experiences that I've had over the years come into play when uh, a sole practitioner or uh, a group of sole practitioners who may be acting in concert or individually um, strike out with no sense of, of budgeting or a budget and not adhering to what they've kind of set out for themselves in terms of expenses. So in looking for office sharing arrangements, those that sometimes don't work are ones where they enter into those situations blindly um, where they don't have a sense of what their expenses are going to be. They haven't really budgeted for the expenses for a certain period of time. Um, they're not anticipating increases in rent over time as is normal in rent rolls. Um, and also the type of share arrangement, meaning that if I'm practicing in a particular area that's not complementary of the group that's there, um, sometimes maybe I'm not 
uh, in a situation where I'm getting overflow work at, at the level that I expected or vice versa. I am, uh, in fact, getting more than I can manage um, because I'm the person there that's, that's the only one that's doing that work. And this is an area where it's high traffic in a particular practice area. So I think you have to be careful in terms of both actual costs of the space in terms of an office share, also whether or not the 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 component or the factoring in of whether it's a complementary practice area to what's being already offered from that particular locale or not, um, and whether that, that has some impact on what you're looking to do. Um, those kinds of things can make a difference. Uh, the amenities aside, in terms of whether or not you have, uh, you know, a, the actual clear Chinese wall set up or clear demarcations between one practice and another, also leading into ethical implications that you have to make sure that you're you're paying attention to as well. And so, again, you have to be really smart when it comes to office sharing, where you're looking to to, to share space. Um, we haven't even we don't have any touch co-working spaces um, that are a little bit more out in the public and the like in, in some of the considerations and things that you need to think about. Um, but in terms of saving, you know, you've got that cost savings, but you also need to be mindful of the ethical implications when you enter into an office share. And also from the marketing angle, what is it really that you're getting or gaining um, from being in that space and how can you, you manage that? Um, you mentioned the co-working share, and I'm not, I'm not sure – Maybe you know, are lawyers using those? I think that we're getting some lawyers to use those in some of the more metropolitan areas. Um, and what I'm finding is that probably, of course, it's going to be be in, or at least from from my experience, newer firms, newer lawyers, more entrepreneurial based um, practices. Uh, those types of firms are starting or those types of lawyers are the ones who are entering into those spaces. Um, and so, you know, you, you see the, the lawyer uh, cranking out the laptop and the, in the hand, uh, the tablet devices in the Starbucks or the, mm-hmm. the coffee shop down the street. And so they're now starting to see some benefit to having a little bit more stability or, uh, uh, or space to meet. And so that's where you're starting to see some of those types of mobile lawyers entering to those spaces. I would say that it's not widely, widely used. I think they're probably what's being learned is that you have to be really careful when it comes to the ethical considerations of, of working from spaces. And so uh, you don't have quite as much, but, but you do have you know, some that are using those spaces. And I'm not sure if the co-working spaces are outside of the cities. Could you explain for our listeners quickly what a co-working space is? So generally, um, in metropolitan areas or, or some of the more more urban spaces, you'll have a, a facility where uh, there are the provision of actual working uh, stations. So if you uh, travel, say, a good bit or go to, an, and say, an airport where you have a, a working space or a table where there is an Internet connection, a space for you to kind of plug in, maybe there's monitors, maybe there, there are different things or different amenities that are added, but it's a space where businesses are able to kind of come and plug in for the day, if you will. And so that space is called co-working spaces because, again, it's a cooperative type effort of people coming in and transitioning in and out. And you don't may or may not have a a set space for a given part of a a week or a day or the like. And so, it, it, you know, there's a a, kind of an interim period. And so those spaces are generally deemed co-working spaces. And so you'll have those more likely in metropolitan areas. And uh, as you leave the urban spaces, you're not likely to see them. 
Do you find um, with budgeting, are most lawyers realistic about their budget? I think once the process has been undertaken and they're serious about the growth of their practice and the business aspects of their practice, then they become, they get, they become realistic. Um, because when you're starting out, it's just a matter, it's kind of a guessing game. Um, after you have three, two to three months of actual expenditures, and then even beyond that, once you've gotten to nine months to a year's worth of expenses behind you, that process can become more targeted, uh, more realistic. And so when you're talking about budgeting, if they're projecting income is where you may have, you know, we don't really know exactly unless we've gone into practice. And what I've typically seen is in about two years, um, a lawyer can can comfortably say, you know, barring economic forces um, that are that are acting contrary to the marketplace, um, they can comfortably say, well, you know, our our market tends to tick up over these months, or practice tends to be down in these particular months. Um, and so, when you're budgeting, they can be mindful of those kinds of interactions or those reactions. Um, in the economy. Uh, for their practices, though, individually, to know what the rental rates are, to know what they're expending in overhead, those types of things are a little bit more static and tend to be in place. So after three or four months, they can say, we know that this is a set cost for us. And one of the wonderful things about solo and small firm practice is the ability to kind of predict um, and be a bit more flexible in terms of what the budget is going to be overall. Um, where, where it kinds to be a little bit tenuous again is back to the initial question that we had about, you know, well, what, you know what do we need to bill in order to pay the rent or, or to meet the rental obligations? Um, and it's not just a rental obligation, but it's going to be kind of all of those, that whole pie in terms of overhead. You know, what can we do to maintain or keep our overhead costs um, at a level that are manageable for whatever our situation happens to be. So when you're in, in practice and you're in a smaller firm, it's a little bit easier to predict what those kind of set costs are. And what's a little bit more harder to predict, of course, is going to be the income um, and what those numbers might turn out for you. And if you feel like you have the revenue to hire someone, do you, does it make most sense to hire an assistant or another attorney? Is your first employee? I think in terms of first employee, it's not really a question of should it be an, an, an assistant versus a lawyer. I think it depends on the work that's, that's, that's there. Um, usually you're looking at the volume of work and or how you are individually working. So if I'm a sole practitioner and I'm hung up with a lot of the administrative tasks, because one of the, the, the challenges or the, one of the main challenges that you hear from solos is that it's wearing all of the other hats. It's the billing. It's the you know the minutia of the day to day, ordering and, and maintaining the supplies in the office. It's managing all the phone calls and returning the phone calls. Those types of things that can sometimes be done by other individuals and not the lawyer. Those are the things that can really hold a lawyer back. Um, there may be another situation where there is a lot of opportunity within a particular practice niche, and I'm seeing or niche, and I can actually see a, a lot of work being bought in a lot a lot of opportunity. And in that scenario, as opposed to the former, I'm able to bring in another attorney as opposed to uh, as an employee to manage that and to grow my practice, if you will, based on the type of work that's going to be 
you know, the legal work that's being being um, produced uh, in the firm versus someone brought in to actually manage some of the, the administrative uh, tasks uh, that might be well suited for an assistant. Um, so it really depends on kind of where the pla- what the placement of the practice is at the time and what the type of work or situations uh, the lawyer is facing. That's probably going to drive that decision more so than, okay, I'm ready to hire someone or I'm in a position where I've got enough money to bring someone in. Um, and what's going to be the best spend for me with, you know, with, that, with those funds? Is it going to be another lawyer um, who may, of course, having to think about you know, benefits for that individual, um, what their expectations and goals are in terms of coming into the practice? Um, yeah, great partnerships are often started that way. Um, it's a little bit easier to get to hire the um, the third the third you know person being an assistant for the two of them or a paralegal for the two of them, um, and that that situation may lend itself uh, to that. Uh, however, it might be the one where I'm there doing all the the administrative things, and just to clear me up to manage better the work that I have um, is going to be a better situation and, and positions me um, more effectively for growth if that's what I'm looking to do. And do you have thoughts on whether it's better to use an outsourcing service for staffing or hire people yourself? I think that question, like the others, are a little bit, it kind of depends individually on what the situations are. Um, One of the benefits of having virtual assistants now and virtual services that are available, it provides a little bit more flexibility for solo and small firms in terms of their options. Um, and so where before you might have been, you know, just I could go to a temp, a temp agency and hire someone on a temporary basis. I could go outside the firm and associate counsel in on a case if things got a little bit too large for me um, in terms of what's on my plate. Um, but now you have virtual assistance and virtual services that are available, and it provides a little bit more flexibility. So I don't know that it's whether it's a, a right or wrong thing to go one way or the other. I think it's dependent upon what, what work needs to be done and what needs to be managed perhaps for how long, what that budget is again, we're back to budgeting again, what the budget or reserves happen to be to to manage that work. Um, And so all of those things kind of play into the cost. And when you start to look at um, whether it's to use a virtual service or a a virtual assistant perhaps, um, is that going to be something that you can afford to do and for how long? And if you can look at your budget and say, yes, I can afford a virtual assistant for the next six months, um, and the matter that you have before you looks like it's going to maybe last three months and you need that service, then perhaps that's a better option than hiring someone who has the, the expectation of being there for the long haul. Um, it, while it may work out, it may be a little bit more prudent to, to invest in a virtual service um, to get through that work for the three-month period versus someone that's going to expect to be there a little bit longer. And so, again, it, it's situational. It all depends is the answer. Um, but I think the focus, especially when it comes to cost savings for solo and small firms, if you're paying attention to what's actually being brought in to saving money or almost like creating a savings account for the firm um, and creating reserves for the firm and operating it in such a way that you're you're kind of having the, the levers are of control or at what you do and expend in terms of overhead, um, that's where you're going to get the ability to to kind of manage where you're growing um, in terms of, of, of finances for the firm. Do you have any cost-saving tips for office supplies? 
Office supplies are interesting because that's the area where things can get out of control or I've seen things get out of control or um, firms don't necessarily sometimes even pay attention to it, which is also fascinating for me um, that I've seen. But um, office supplies, you want to start to look at cost savings in that area. And one of the things that you can do is look to your local or specialty bar associations there are a lot of member benefits programs or sponsored programs um, for savings on office supplies. And if you're not taking advantage of those, you're probably missing out on some of the, the savings that you can receive, your discounts that you can receive um, when it comes to office supplies. There's not a magic number. Again, it's, you know, how much you're spending, how much you're expending, what that what that those numbers look like. And so for most firms, if you're if you're looking at office supplies, again, I kind of use that three month figure as a you know operate going full operationally moving forward operationally for three months, looking at what you've expended over three months, kind of use that as a gauge to to determine what we might on an average spend in a particular thing, whether it's paper, whether it's pens, whether you know it's pads, those kinds of things. Um, look at that. But then also take into consideration um, what savings might be had if you move, say, to a paperless office. Got, you know, we're moving to probably very, very little paper costs, um, but you're, you're expending more perhaps on, on the technology or the hardware um, within the firm and the like. And so, again, just paying attention to those types of things in terms of supplies, uh, it, it really, really does depend on how you're, how you're practicing nowadays. All right. Natalie, that's everything that I have for you today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. No problem. I've enjoyed it. And hopefully um, the listeners got a chance to or or really start to think about their budgets and, and putting that down in writing somewhere. Yes. All right. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, signing off from the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.